Well, Chris and I didn't talk about uh, what I was preaching on tonight, but he couldn't have picked a better song to sing as we are being led into our time in God's Word, and that gives me hope and gets me excited uh, just to know that the Holy Spirit is in this when we come together um, in uh, God's house and open up His Word. Uh, this is just not a bunch of people getting together, hanging out, but the Spirit of God is at work uh, in each of our lives. I'm convinced that every one of you that is sitting here tonight is here because God wanted you here tonight, and specifically to hear this particular message. And that's the, the hope and the confidence I have as a preacher, that whenever God's Word is opened, uh, God has exactly who he wants to be there to hear that message and uh, God's word never returns void it always accomplishes its purposes when it's sent forth as it's preached and as it's read and so with that confidence with that hope I want to invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to Luke chapter 14 Luke chapter 14 and we're going to be looking at uh, the longest passage that we've looked at so far in our short summer series that we're calling Come and Die, Answering Christ's Call to Follow Me. And we've, for those of you that may be visiting tonight, we've just been looking at uh, various passages from the Gospel of Luke where Jesus uses that phrase, follow me, and he um, gives some description of what that looks like. Well, what does it mean? What did Jesus mean when he said, follow me? And so we're coming now to our fourth text, uh, Luke chapter 14, and let me just read verses 25 through 33. You can follow along in your own Bibles as I read. Luke records, now large crowds were going along with him, Jesus, and he turned and said to them, if anyone wishes to come after me, or excuse me, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not carry his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which one of you, when he wants to build a tower, does not first sit down and calculate the cost to see if he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he's laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who observe it begin to ridicule him, saying, This man began to build and was unable to finish. Or what king, when he sets out to meet another king in battle, will not first sit down and consider whether he is strong enough with 10,000 men to encounter one coming against him with 20,000? Or else, while the other is still far away, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So then, none of you can be my disciple who does not give up all his own possessions. Father, we thank you for preserving the words of Christ for us in your word, how we would have loved to hear this with our own ears, um, this come out of Jesus' mouth and uh, to have been there in this crowd, but Lord, by the inspiration of your spirit, Lord, Luke has recorded this for us and it's as if we are right there and uh, I pray that your spirit would now illuminate our minds tonight, help us to understand what Jesus meant by what he said here, and Lord, that you would uh, accomplish your work in each heart that is present. Lord, Lord there may be uh, those who, who know you, who've already repented and turned away from their sin and are following Christ. I pray that this message would be a good reminder for them of what it means to be a Christian, and Lord, for those that are here that may have never acknowledge the fact that they're a sinner and have never uh, embraced Jesus as their Lord and Savior, or that tonight would be the night of their salvation. I pray this for your honor and your glory in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you've been coming to our summer series, you know that so far we've seen the conditions to follow Christ. In Luke chapter 9, verse 23, Jesus said, if anyone comes after me or wishes to come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. And so those are the conditions to follow Christ. And then we have looked at the considerations to follow Christ. What would compel someone 
uh, to actually deny themselves, take up their cross daily and follow Christ? Well, for whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake, he is the one who will save it. For what is a man profited if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. And so those were the reasons that Jesus gave for someone to follow him. And then last week, we looked at the challenges to follow Christ. We saw that in Luke chapter 9, verse 57. As they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, the foxes have holes and the birds of the airs have nests. But the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. And he said to another, follow me. But he said, Lord, permit me first to go and bury my father. But he said to him, allow the dead to bury their own dead. But you go and proclaim everywhere the kingdom of God. Another also said, I will follow you, Lord, but first permit me to say goodbye to those at home. And Jesus said to him, no one after putting his hand to the plow and looking back is fit for the kingdom of God. And so those were the challenges that that Jesus gave to those who wanted to follow him. Well, tonight we are going to look at the costs to following Christ or the cost of Christianity. Now, we understand the word cost to mean the amount of time or energy or money required to buy something or to achieve something. It's the sacrifice required. It's the price that you must pay. Now, some of you may react immediately to this idea of the cost of Christianity. Something just doesn't sound right about Christianity and cost. Um, you may be thinking, well, wait a minute, Ken, I thought salvation is a free gift from God. It doesn't cost anything. You, you can't earn it, you can't buy it, you can't work for it. The Scripture clearly teaches, Romans 6.23, the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Ephesians 2.8.9 says, for by grace we are saved through faith. It's not of ourselves, it is a gift of God, not of works, so that no one can boast. And so how can you say there's a cost to Christianity when the Bible says it's free? You might also think, well, wait a minute, didn't Jesus Christ pay the price for our salvation in full once and for all when he died on the cross? And the Bible does teach that. Acts 20, 28, the church of God was purchased with Christ's blood. 1 Corinthians 6.20, we have been bought with a price, talking about the death of Christ. So to say there's a price to pay sounds like heresy. Well, all that is true, but it was Jesus Christ himself who said that there is a cost to Christianity. And he challenged everyone who wanted to become a Christian to carefully count that cost or consider that cost. And Luke recorded that challenge in this passage. Listen to how John Stott, in his classic book, Basic Christianity, applies this passage to the state of modern Christianity. Very insightful. He said, quote, the Christian landscape is strewn with the wreckage of derelict half-built towers the ruins of those who began to build and weren't able to finish. For thousands of people still ignore Christ's warning and undertake to follow him without first pausing to reflect on the cost of doing so. The result is the great scandal of Christendom today, so-called nominal Christianity. In countries to which Christian civilization has spread, large numbers of people have covered themselves with a decent but thin veneer of Christianity. They've allowed themselves to become somewhat involved, enough to be respectable, but not enough to be uncomfortable. Their religion is a great soft cushion. It protects them from the hard unpleasantness of life while changing its place and shape to suit their convenience. And then he said this, No wonder the cynics, speak of hypocrites in the church, and dismiss Christianity as escapism. In a nutshell, what 
Stott was saying is that there's a whole lot of people in the world calling themselves Christians who are not truly Christians. They're, they're Christians in name only. I'll never forget the first trip I took to India years ago, back in the mid-90s, and uh, a dear friend of ours was a missionary there, and uh, we were talking about the state of Christianity in India, and uh, you know, you look at the statistics and, and how many they say there are, how many Christians there are, and compared to how many Hindus there are, and Muslims there are, and, and, uh, and, and my friend just said, yeah, but you know, the majority of people uh, in this country that claim the name of Christ, they're just nominal. They're nominal. And I was like, I had never heard that term before. And I was like, well, what do you mean by nominal? Well, they're Christians in name only. In other words, they're, they're not a Hindu, they're not a Muslim, and so what's left, they're a Christian. And so we should ask ourselves, well, how did Christianity get this way? We're, we're, you, got a, you got a world full of people, a lot of people saying I'm a Christian when they're really not. I think one of the major reasons, if not the main reason, is the preaching of a weak or incomplete gospel, or in some cases, a false gospel. And uh, if you were here for that series we did during equipping hour, um, what was that called? The American Gospel, right? Um, faith alone, in Christ alone. And that really exposed the, the gospel that's often preached here in America that, that we export around the world, which is not the true gospel. And, and all too often, I think preachers and evangelists, they offer salvation as this, as this simple formula of just accepting Jesus into your heart and your sins will be forgiven and you'll go to heaven when you die. And not only is, is, is their message confusing, but so is their method. And if you're like me, I, I grew up in the church, and I grew up uh, going to a lot of camps and a lot of conferences, and, and I lost track of the amount of invitations, or, or uh, how many invitations were given, right, where, where huge crowds of people were, were asked after a message, after a, some, some usually a hellfire and brimstone message that got everybody convicted or guilty about their sin, and, and they said, if you don't know for sure that you're going to go to heaven when you die, we, I, want you to, I want you to raise your hand right now if you want to become a Christian. And of course, they got everybody to, to bow their head and close their eyes, and okay, okay, now I want you to raise your hand, and if you want to become a Christian, and I want you to raise your hand, and, uh, and then, then I want you, uh, if you raise your hand, uh, you know, I want you to I want you to pray this prayer right now, and, and uh, okay, then, it, then if you prayed this prayer tonight, you know, the Bible says you're not supposed to be ashamed, so I want you to stand up and come down front, right? They kind of led you along there, and at the end of the day, you kind of felt like you were manipulated down to the front, right, after praying a prayer and raising your hand and, and, and standing up and coming down front, and, and, and again, it's, it's, it's this, so this huge crowd of people, you know, hundreds of people come forward, and they all walk away thinking they're Christians, when nothing was ever said about the cost of following Christ. And in stark contrast to those who invite huge crowds to follow Christ, Jesus himself drove huge crowds away from following him. And we've been saying that Jesus was the master of de-invitation, right? And, and that's exactly what's going on here. Look at verse 25. Now large crowds were going along with him. And if I was Jesus, and it's a good thing I'm not Jesus, right? But if I was Jesus, I'd be walking along and looking over my shoulder and seeing this crowd, this huge crowd, and it's just getting bigger and bigger and bigger. I'd be like, hey, this is pretty cool. I got a lot of people following me. But notice it says, Large crowds were going along with him, and he turned and said to them. It's like, like he, 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 he stopped, dead in his tracks. He, he turned around and said, okay, everybody, hold up, time out, hold up. Listen, if you want to follow me, okay, before you go any further, you need to seriously consider a few things. In fact, three things to be exact. Did you notice when we were reading this that there was a, a phrase that Jesus used three times? He said the same thing three times. 
in verse 26, what does he say? He cannot be my disciple. Verse 27, cannot be my disciple. Verse 33, none of you can be my disciple. In other words, if you're not willing to do these three things that he mentions here, you cannot be a, what do we say at the beginning? What's another word for disciple? A Christian, right? Disciple and Christian are are synonymous terms in the New Testament. And so in this passage, Jesus challenged this crowd, and he's challenging all of us tonight, to consider what we could call the three costs of Christianity. Jesus is essentially saying, this is what it will cost you to be a Christian. This is the price you must be willing to pay if you want to follow me. Now the question is, why would Jesus demand that these people carefully consider these three costs? Well, at this time, there were many people attracted to Jesus. And they were enthusiastically following him to Jerusalem. And there was this great expectation in the air that Jesus was going to overthrow the Roman government and and free the Jews from their bondage to Rome and set up his kingdom in Jerusalem. And so the closer they got to Jerusalem, the bigger and the more excited the crowd became. They were hoping to to get in on the action uh, and share the benefits of being associated with the new king of Israel. And yet little did they know that Jesus wasn't going to to Jerusalem to reign on a throne, but to hang on a cross. And so Jesus understood that that dynamic of the crowd. He, He knew that this crowd could be separated into at least two groups. You had those who had a half-hearted, superficial attachment to Christ, and those who had a wholehearted, sacrificial commitment to Christ. Big difference, being attached to Christ and being committed to Christ. And so he wanted to expose those that were half-hearted in their attachment to him and, and, uh, and encourage those who were wholehearted in their commitment to him. In other words, he didn't want anybody in that crowd to be deceived into thinking they were a true follower of Christ when they really weren't. And so his purpose in in challenging this crowd with these these three costs was to drive away those people that weren't truly committed to him. And I believe the Holy Spirit has the same purpose for this text tonight. He doesn't want anybody sitting here deceived into thinking that they're really saved or they're a Christian when they're really not. I would say in a group this size, there are likely some who merely have a half-hearted, superficial attachment to Christ. And I think the Spirit of God wants to expose you tonight for who you really are and exhorts you to do what we just sang and that is to surrender all. Surrender everything. Your entire life to Jesus Christ. And so let's look at these three costs of following Christ. Number one, we'll call devotion. Devotion. And this relates to our personal relations and the, the, the basic point is this, that we must love nobody more than Christ. We must love nobody more than Christ. Look at verse 26. Jesus said, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Now, if we only had this verse to go on, we might think that Jesus was literally telling us to hate the members of our family. But thankfully, there's other verses in the Bible that help us understand what Jesus meant here. We know that husbands are to love their wives and children are to obey and honor their parents. We're supposed to love our enemies. 
And there's also a very helpful verse in Matthew 10, verse 37, where Jesus said this, he who loves father or mother, remember what it says, what? More than me is not worthy of me, and he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. So when you combine all that the scripture records that Jesus said here, when Christ said we must hate the members of our family, he really meant we must love them less than we love him. In other words, he wasn't saying that we shouldn't love our family, but that our love for him is so much greater than our love for our family that when you compare the two, it seems like we hate our family. And again, Jesus was talking to a group of Jews here who the family played a major role in their lives. They, they were completely loyal to the members of their family. The, the family controlled everything a person did or didn't do. And so Jesus went after the relationships that were the dearest and the deepest in their lives. And he does that for us as well. He, he goes after those relationships that are the, the deepest and the dearest in our life. And he's basically saying, listen, your relationship with me has to be the deepest and dearest in your life. And if this applies to family relationships, then certainly it also applies to every other relationship in our lives, whether that's our friends, our boyfriends or girlfriends, um, if you're a young person, uh, our boss. When I grew up, when I was growing up, I should say, uh, back in the 70s and 80s, one of my spiritual heroes was a guy named Keith Green. I'm sure most of you have heard of Keith Green, and he was a musician, a, a songwriter, and just a passionate soul for Christ, and really exhorted uh, the church in his day, in our day when I was a young person, to, to really uh, go all after Christ, go hard after Jesus. If you know David Platt, uh, he's kind of that guy in our generation now who's calling people to a, a radical commitment to Christ. And so uh, I would, anytime I saw anything written by Keith Green, I would just get it and devour it. And so I came across this, this little track, this little uh, pamphlet. And this is, this is um, many years old here. But it was called Total Commitment, Communism Versus Christianity. And uh, interesting read here, but one of the things that he includes in this uh, is a letter written by an American college student who had been converted to communism in Mexico. And, and the purpose of this letter was to explain to his uh, fiance why he had to break off their engagement. And I want to read this letter for you. Again, young person, young college student, American college student who'd been converted to communism in Mexico, writing to his fiance to break off the engagement. This is what he wrote. We communists have a high casualty rate. We're the ones who get slandered and ridiculed and fired from our jobs and in every other way made as uncomfortable as possible. A certain percentage of us get killed or imprisoned. We live in virtual poverty. We turn back to the party every penny we make above what is absolutely necessary to keep us alive. We communists don't have time or the money for many movies or concerts or T-bone steaks or decent homes and new cars. We've been described as fanatics. We are fanatics. Our lives are dominated by one great overshadowing factor, the struggle for world communism. We communists have a philosophy of life which no amount of money could buy. We have a cause to fight for, a definite purpose in life. We subordinate our petty personal selves into a great movement of humanity. And if our personal lives seem hard or our egos appear to suffer through subordination to the party, then we are adequately compensated by the fact that each of us, in a small way, is contributing to something new and true and better for mankind. The communist cause is my life, my business, my religion, my hobby, my sweetheart, my wife and mistress, my bread and meat. I work at it in the daytime and dream of it at night. Its hold on me grows, not lessens as time goes on. 
Therefore, I cannot carry on a friendship, a love affair, or even a conversation without relating it to this force which both guides and drives my life. I evaluate people, books, ideas, actions according to how they affect the communist cause and by their attitude toward it. I've already been in jail because of my ideas, and if necessary, I'm ready to go before a firing squad. And Keith Green made the obvious statement, if communists can be as devoted as this, how much more should Christians pour themselves out in intense devotion for their glorious Lord? Amen? So let me ask you some questions. Is the most important relationship in your life your relationship with Jesus Christ? Does Christ have any rival in your life? Is there anyone that he has to compete with for your attention? If you have to choose to be loyal to Christ or to someone else, who are you loyal to? That might seem hard enough, but Jesus took it to the next level and he went for the jugular at the end of verse 26. Notice he says, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, you need to hate your own life you cannot be my disciple, he says. See, he knew what the real issue was here. That we as sinful people are most devoted to who? Ourselves. We treat ourselves like we are the most important person in the world. And that's why we are so easily drawn into the world's appeals to indulge ourselves and to pamper ourselves and assert ourselves and reward ourselves. But Jesus said we need to what? Hate ourselves. In other words, we need to be more devoted to Christ than we are to ourselves. We need to be willing to deny ourselves. And so how about this question? Do you love Jesus more than you love yourself? When you have to choose between doing what you want to do and doing what Jesus wants you to do, what do you choose to do? Are you living your life to please yourself or are you living your life to please Christ? So what Jesus was saying here was simple. He said, if you're not willing to love me more than anyone else, especially yourself, then you can't be a Christian. Because that's what it means to be a Christian. Did you love Christ more than anybody. Nobody, you love nobody more than Christ. So that's the first cost, devotion. But there's a second cost, and we'll call that derision. Derision. And this, this relates to our personal ambitions. And uh, I think the point here in verse 27 is simply that we need to endure anything for Christ. Love nobody more than Christ, and then secondly, endure anything for Christ. Notice what he said, verse 27. Whoever does not carry his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Now, again, we mentioned this at the beginning when we looked at Luke 9, uh, verse 23. He must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. This cross does not mean some burden that you have to bear, some trial that you have to go through. This is not some disease or some difficult person or some difficult task. My, we, we, we use that expression, well, this is my cross to bear. But when we spiritualize that phrase, this cross, carry his own cross, we take away the sting of what Jesus was saying here. And when Jesus said they needed to be willing to carry their own cross, there was only one thing that came into the minds of everybody in that crowd. What was it? Crucifixion. And the Romans reserved crucifixion to torture and kill the worst 
criminals, mainly those who rebelled against their authority. And Jesus was considered a rebel leader. And so he warned all those who wanted to follow him that they needed to be ready and willing to be crucified along with him. And when a person was crucified back then, they were, they were forced to carry their cross. They, they carried the cross beam of their cross on the place or to the place of execution. I'm sure you've seen pictures of that. And typically the road that that they walked on towards that place of execution as they were carrying their cross was lined with people who were laughing at them and mocking them and deriding them as they walked by. Now, as I recall, I haven't seen anybody crucified lately, and you haven't either. But before we're quick to principalize this expression, we need to consider some sobering facts. There's a reason why we try to keep the persecuted church in front of us as a, as a church here in America, because it's a, a sobering reminder that, that we're living in Christian Disneyland here in America. We really are. We don't have a clue what it's like to be a Christian in most other parts of the world. 70% of Christians, I mean, I'm talking about true Christians, not just nominal Christians, but 70% of true Christians live in parts of the world where uh, it's either uh, illegal um, to be a Christian um, or at least you put your life on the line to be a Christian. Um, the majority of Christians in our world today suffer persecution, um, martyrdom. I'm talking about places like China and the Middle East and South America. Even in some places as close to, as Mexico. In some regions there where becoming a Christian is a crime punishable by death. And oftentimes when someone becomes a Christian... They're disowned by their family. They're fired from their jobs. They're run out of their village. They're kidnapped, beaten, imprisoned, raped, subjected to slavery, or a bounty is placed on their head, and anybody who knows them, including their family members, can hunt them down and kill them to get the money. There's a, actually a movie that was produced um, several years back a true life story of a, of a Muslim man who repented and came to Christ and uh, his family tracked him down and were trying to um, kill him. And thankfully, the Lord spared his life and he escaped uh, to America. Uh, the name of that movie is uh, Behind the Sun. I think we have it in our resource center. You could rent it out. And uh, it's just a, just a compelling story, but that's what they... That's the phrase that the Muslims use when, when uh, somebody, one of their own, converts to Christianity. They put them behind the sun. In other words, we can't see you. You no longer exist, is the expression. The last statistic that I read, it's an estimated that 164,000 Christians are martyred throughout the world in a year. That's over 400 a day. So while we were going about our day-to-day, -day, whatever that was, and no matter how hard it might have been, there were brothers and sisters in Christ who were losing their life because they refused to recant their commitment. And so for some today, becoming a Christian literally cost them their life. And this type of commitment to Christ amidst unbelievable persecution, I mean, again, it makes American Christianity seem so shallow, so fake. I remember several years ago, Kelly was reading a book. I think it was a summer reading uh, that all the women were doing together. It was a book called Daughters of Hope. Anybody remember that book? You read that together? 
And I'll never forget, she sat down at the breakfast table, and our kids were smaller uh, then, and so we were all still sitting around the table and eating. Well, that never happens anymore, right? But uh, we were sitting down, and she said, hey, guys, I want to read you something this morning. And, and this is what she read, and I'll never forget it. Uh, the, the book, Daughters of Hope, was written by uh, a couple American women uh, who, who traveled all over the world to meet their persecuted sisters in Christ. And just talk to them and get to know them and interview them. And they wrote this book based on their findings. And this is what Kelly read. In India, we had just listened to a group of Dalit women tell of the harsh persecution they had endured because of their stand for Christ. Dalit women are the lowest caste in India. Despised. And on top of that, they became Christians. Before we parted, the author says, I asked our usual question, is there anything you would like to ask us? And they looked at me curiously, shyly, before we came. None of them had ever seen a North American woman. Finally, through the translator, one woman asked, did you ever go hungry because you're a Christian? No, I said, I never did. Did you ever have your house taken away? Asked another. She said, no. No, I didn't. Did you ever lose your job because you're a Christian? No. When people find out you're a Christian, do they throw rocks at you? No, no one throws rocks. Has anyone ever thrown you in a fire because you're a Christian? And the author wrote, it was the first woman again, and she was leaning forward eagerly awaiting my answer. I did not have to ask the source of the scars on her dark brown arms. In other words, she had been thrown in the fire. No, I said, you see, in America, those things don't happen. In America, it's against the law to throw people out of their houses or take away their jobs or stone them or throw them in the fire because they're Christians. The woman stared at us uncomprehendingly. Then one said, but if it doesn't cost you anything, how do you in America know what it means to be a Christian? She said, I was was thinking about how to answer the first woman asked, if you in America did have to suffer, would you still be Christians? Compelling questions. And I personally wonder what would happen if what sometimes happens at other churches around the world when they gather together for Bible studies like this, What would you do? What would I do if all of a sudden Islamic zealots zealots threw rocks through these windows and barged in with their AK-47s and leveled leveled them at us and uh, told us all to renounce our faith in Christ or we would be killed? Or imagine they grabbed one of our Bibles And threw it down on the floor and said, hey, I want all of you to walk by this Bible and spit on it and leave and never come back here. When that actually happened in Asia, a few of the young people spit on the Bible and ran off. And then this one young lady came up and she knelt down and she picked up the Bible and she wiped off the spit with her skirt and uh, held it close to her heart. And the last thing she heard was a gun shot to her head. I mean, this is, I'm not making this stuff up. This, you can read about this in the Voice of the Martyrs magazines that they send us on a monthly basis. See, in those contexts, nobody pretends to be a Christian. There's no, nobody faking it. There's no fringe people who would risk getting arrested or even killed for something that they're nominally committed to. Well, Lord willing, none of us will ever have to face that kind of situation. But I think we must be ready and willing to endure being made fun of, being laughed at, ridiculed, persecuted for the sake of Christ, maybe missing a promotion, losing friends, 
2 Timothy 3.12, Indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be what? Persecuted. It's a given. And so what Jesus was saying here is simple. If, if we're not willing to endure derision, persecution, or even death for His sake, then we cannot be a Christian. So we've got devotion, we've got derision, and then thirdly, there's a third cost here, and that we could call dedication. Dedication. And this relates to our personal possessions, okay? This is um, the idea here in the rest of this passage is that we need to surrender everything to Christ. We need to surrender everything to Christ. And Jesus went on here to tell two short parables, which were just stories, short stories, Uh, that illustrate a particular truth, and both stories teach the same basic truth. The first story is about a guy building a tower, verse 28. For which one of you, when he wants to build a tower, does not first sit down and calculate the cost to see if he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he's laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who observe it begin to ridicule him. So Jesus says, you you know, if you're going to build a tower, you don't just rush out there and, and, and try to whip this thing up, you, you, you take some, some time to, to, to seriously consider whether or not you have what it takes to do this. You don't, don't, don't just rashly do something. You take out your calculator and you crunch the numbers and you see if you have enough money and enough supplies to complete the project. Or else if you run out of money before you finish, people are going to walk by your half-built tower and laugh and say, what an idiot. <laughs> And you become the laughing stock of the entire town. I did this once in a small, on a small scale. One Saturday, uh, when we used to live in Walden, we had a, a great little side yard with lots of trees. I thought, I'm going to build my kids a treehouse. And if you know anything about me, I don't know, I don't have a clue about building anything. Um, my wife's better with a screwdriver than I am, and I'm man enough to admit it, Okay. If I get a power tool in my hand, my wife calls 911. Okay, something bad is going to happen. Um, but I thought, hey, I'm going to throw, I'm going to, I'm just going to kind of whip up this, this tree house. It can't be that hard. I had some old wood, you know, scrap wood in my garage and some a hammer and some nails. And so I got out there and, you know, cut, cut these little steps. And that was easy, you know, just nailing these steps up the tree. And then there was a little place where the tree went like this. And I, okay, now how do I do this? And I, okay, I got, I got a one piece of wood here and like, it like took all Saturday and, and I like got stuck and I didn't know what to do and I didn't know how to finish it out and I didn't have the wood and so I just said, hang it. And I just left it. And so I can't tell you how many times as people were walking by our house, they'd be like, hey, is that a tree house out there? And I'd be like, uh, yeah. <laughs> really never was able to finish it and you know, I had to come up with all these excuses because I didn't count the cost. I thought I had this, I had this, I got this, no big deal. So he says, make sure you count the cost. You, you know that. You don't just go out and whip something. You count the cost. Then he tells a second story about going to war. Notice verse 31. He says, or what king, when he sets out to meet another king in battle, will not first sit down and consider the cost, whether he's strong enough with 10,000 men to encounter the one coming against him with 20,000. Or else while the other is still far away, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. In other words, if you realize you're outnumbered two to one, you have to seriously consider the cost of trying to be Rambo and, and, and wildly and foolishly rushing into battle outnumbered two to one. You, you don't want to underestimate the strength of your opponent or the damage uh, or the loss that he can inflict on you. You need to be careful to count your potential losses. You could lose your battle. You lose the battle, you can lose your army, you can lose your own life. And so the smartest thing to do is to send an ambassador to sign a peace treaty with this other king. Well, again, this is not about building towers and about going to war, okay? The point that Jesus was making in these stories is this. Before making any important decision, make sure that you carefully consider what that decision will cost you. That was the point of those stories. So I ask you, what is the most important decision you'll ever make in life? Whether or not to become a Christian. And yet so many people treat that decision so flippantly, they make it 
rashly, quickly. And afterward, as soon as they realize what it, what it actually means or costs to follow Christ, they walk away. In other words, they underestimate what it means to be a Christian. And so avoid, to avoid this situation, again, Jesus was warning this crowd that before becoming a Christian, they need to consider what it was going to cost them. But he didn't just tell them to consider what it will cost them. He told them exactly what it would cost them. Notice what he said, verse 33. So then, none of you can be my disciple who does not give up all his own possessions. We must be willing to give up everything we have to Christ. Literally say goodbye to all of our possessions. Say farewell to everything that's important to us, everything we hold dear. And it's again, not that we don't possess anything, but it's nothing possesses us. I don't think that Jesus was telling them they, they needed to sell everything they had and just come follow him. He was simply saying, listen, everything that you have and everything that you are becomes mine. I become the owner, and what I say goes. And by the way, you can use these things, right, for the time being, but just remember, if I need any of those things, you need to be willing to offer them to me. Being a Christian means giving up everything we have and everything we are to Christ. We, along with everything else in our life, comes under His control. He becomes the owner. He becomes the master of it all. And we need to use it all for His honor and all for His glory. And so again, what Jesus was saying here is simple, that if you're not willing to give up everything we have and everything that we are for Him, we cannot be a Christian. These are the three costs of following Christ. Devotion, derision, dedication. Love nobody more than Christ. Endure anything for Christ. And surrender, surrender everything to Christ. This is what it will cost you to be a Christian. This is the price we must be willing to pay. Now, it wouldn't surprise me if someone's sitting here saying, you got to be kidding me. I can't afford that. That cost is too great. That price is way too high. Well, let me get you to consider two things as we close. First of all, the cost of not following Christ. The cost of not following Christ. Following Christ will cost you everything in life. But how insignificant is that cost in comparison to the cost if you reject Christ? It will cost you a whole lot more in the end. It will cost you your soul in hell. What will it profit you if you gain the whole world? In other words, you get everything you ever wanted in life, but then die and go to hell. It was all for nothing. And so from that standpoint, you can't afford not to come to Christ. Let me get you to think about something else. If you think the price is too high, consider the price that Christ paid for you. Jesus gave up everything for you. He left the glory of heaven and came to earth to die in the place of sinners like you and like me. He gave up his life to save us. And so it only makes sense that we must give up our life to receive that salvation. Christ came and died and he bids us come and die. Let's pray. Now, I do want you to close your eyes and I want you to bow your heads, which sounds very familiar maybe to some of you who have sat through many 
sermons and messages in church and conferences and camps because this is when the preacher would invite you to pray a prayer and raise your hand and stand up and come forward. I'm not going to do that tonight. I'm going to just say, if you want to become a Christian tonight, I want to challenge you to sit there and consider the cost of becoming a Christian. And to help you do that, let me just read for you how one man summarized Jesus' invitation to salvation in this passage. Essentially, Jesus is saying, I don't wish to trick you. I'm not offering the end of worldly sorrows nor flowery beds of ease. I will not enlist you under false pretenses. The road of following me is rough and steep. Stormy weather encompasses the entire course. There are many hills of difficulty and many valleys of, hum- valleys of humiliation for genuine Christians. So I'd set the symbol of a cross before you vividly to portray the difficulty and the personal demand made on my disciples. I want you to come, but I want you to weigh the cost as you follow. Father, this is a challenging text to hear and to apply to our lives. It's really simple to understand. It's just difficult to do. And we confess, Lord, there's none of us in here that can do this in and of ourselves. You need to grant us the repentance and faith that you require of us. And Lord, even those of us that are Christians, we look at this and we know we fall far short and there's so much more surrender required of us that we have yet to give and offer you, but Lord, I pray that we would just be sensitive to your spirit as, as you continue to show us areas in our lives that, that we need to surrender to you, to give up to you, to hand over to you, um, or to give up for you, that we would have a heart, a willing heart, just to, to give it up, to give it away, to stop doing it, whatever it is. And Lord, that you would grant us the grace that if we are ever put in a position, like so many of our brothers and sisters, our precious brothers and sisters around this world who are even now having their lives taken from them by your enemies, Lord, if we're ever in that position, that we would rise to the occasion and you would grant us the boldness and the courage um, to stand for Christ no matter what, no matter the cost. And in the meantime, Lord, help us to be willing to endure the smaller types of persecution that come our way. They seem huge. The laughter of being ostracized, not being one of the guys or the gals, not fitting in, maybe losing opportunities. Lord, all these things we can do because we love Jesus. And I pray we'd willingly endure those things for your glory and your honor. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen.